Hello, it's Steve and we're back for more coaching in your ear. Today's session, we are going to be keeping it all easy today. We're going to learn the art of easy running. But we're going to mix it up with a little bit of spice here and there with some surges. So some sporadic, some sporadic uh, increases of pace. Nothing too dramatic, nothing too heavy, just something to spice up an easy run that might otherwise be a little, a little boring, a little ploddy, sometimes that affects us and uh, we'll get going in a sec, just going to get through a little jog for a few minutes and then we'll get going. Uh, into some more jogging. So we're just going to be keeping it easy. I'm going to be doing this for 40 minutes. Nice and easy run. A bit of chat along the way. Not pulling up any trees. Not breaking any records. Just doing some easy, easy running. Okay. Gonna get going in 40 minutes. 40 minutes, we'll start now. Off we go. So we're gonna keep it all easy. All jogging. As slow as you want. And I just want to talk about the importance of that, slow running. Because our temptation often is to keep pushing, pushing, pushing even in our easy runs just to see what we can do each time see if we can improve each day and it doesn't really work like that and in fact the harder you push and the longer you run the easier you need to do your easy days use some elites as inspiration and we just need to look at what they do really and you know let's take elite marathon runners who might run a marathon distance of five minutes a mile which is quicker than many of us can run most distances And they do a lot of their work and a lot of their running, the majority of their running, and maybe seven minute miles, so at least two minutes per mile slower. And they do that so that they're fresh for their hard effort days, but they're doing it to build up volume in a safe way. Like I say, the more miles you're putting in and the more intense your sessions, the easier your easy days need to be. So your average pace over a given period, like a week maybe, or two weeks, 
might actually slow down. But for many of us, you know, elite athletes are well, different in lots of ways, but in one way, it's the amount of time that they have, if they're professionals in particular, obviously. So, they're in no rush. We might find ourselves with a 45 minute block of time, or in the days of going to work, a run commute where we've got to get there by a certain time, and we have to put it in a little bit. And the other thing that happens to us sandwiches is we can find the easy runs a bit boring. A little bit purposeless. Sometimes that's because we don't understand the importance of running easy so that we can build volume but at that putting pressure on our aerobic or a muscular system. But sometimes it's just boredom. Sometimes it feels too easy and just want to do something in the run to spice it up. It's my only run that day keep it super easy feels a bit pointless so I might try and do some other stuff so uh, a way around that is to spice up the easy one a little bit but without causing any workload duress and what I mean by that is doing short bursts of higher intensity and not very much of it in the course of an easy run and that's what we're doing today so we're going to do some surges and pick the pace up a little bit every now and then for 20 30 40 seconds something like that and then we just go back to really easy we've been going five minutes really nice and easy so now it's going to put our first surge in 30 seconds or so you don't need to sprint it's not all out it's not even close to it just pick the pace up a little bit from that nice easy jogging pace that you're running some mixed terrain here running around a mountain bike track in Epping Forest is making it challenging okay and relax back down to your easy pace and that's uh, and that's another thing you can do for your easy runs to spice them up is to change your routes change your routines get off the beaten track off your normal routes maybe you can run across a park on the grass rather than around the road on the outside 
good chance to change things up. Just keep it all super easy. These easy runs also have the benefit of helping clear out any metabolic waste that's sitting inside your bloodstream or your muscular system. Just shifting things around, boosting your circulation, keeping things moving, boosting your immune system as well. Again, by the circulatory benefit of a slightly elevated heart rate. But you should, in these runs, be able to keep it really light and uh, to the point where you're able to speak the whole way around. So that's a good test for me this morning. A bit downhill there. And if you meet undulations on your easy runs, pull the pace back, don't worry about the pace. It's all about effort. Just gone up a little hill there. It's about keeping your effort level consistent and consistently low. So in the wider world, we uh, can see life returning a bit more to normal. Pubs opened last weekend. Shops are open. We're able to have people around. You can even sleep at someone's house, I think, if you want. And there's even new stuff in the news. And that's something I wanted to talk about today. You know things are getting back to normal in the running world if people aren't talking about virtual races so much. And how far to run away from one another although we're still in groups of six and we're still not racing, obviously. Okay, we're going to put another surge in. A little 30 second bit of effort. Not too, like I say, not dramatic. Let's pick it up a little. And relax, back to your easy pace. So in the running world this week, there's some news about Adidas joining the carbon fibre plate. Sorry, the carbon plated shoes game. 
and we've had Wilson Kipsang banned for four years for failing to attend anti-doping tests which came hot on the heels of Christian Coleman having exactly the same issue so what I would describe as the two negative things about our sport are back in the back in the headlines and the shoes in my mind negativity around them is about the impact they're having on benchmarking in the sport and it's just a short term thing in the long term it will wash itself out but for now there's a bit of a, an impact where if you've got the shoes you're kind of a few percentage points better than those that haven't just through the shoes but that'll correct, that'll correct itself and I don't really want to talk about that uh, but instead I want to talk about doping so those are two and it has you know, I say it's back in the news but it has been buried a little bit but still by Covid but they're massive high, high profile cases both of them so Christian Coleman if you don't know is the current 100 metres world champion he's com- currently the fastest man on the planet and Wilson Kipsang won the bronze medal for the marathon for the men's marathon at the 2012 Olympics he's a former world record holder and he's won the London Marathon so it's a pretty big deal and in both instances they're both guilty of the same crime and it is a crime as far as I'm concerned but we'll come back to that and that is failing to appear where they should have appeared to conduct a doping test okay we're going into another surge off we go Thirty odd seconds. And we'll relax it down. Nice and easy. And so if you don't know the, the, the system uh, the thing that they, the rule that they broke was the whereabouts rule. So, across all elite sport globally, athletes are expected to complete a future facing diary that tells the authorities, the anti doping authorities, where they will be for one hour for a one hour block every day so it sounds quite onerous you've got to tell them where you're going to be and you've got to commit to that and you've got to be there and then the anti-doping authorities will turn up 
randomly without warning at your location at your time and collect some samples. But of course, things slip. So you can have, you know, people make admin errors, they forget what they put in for a certain day, perhaps if their routine changes, or perhaps there's a last minute change of plan at home, or I mean, we all suffer from that. And that's mitigated in the legislation in that you're allowed to have two missed tests in any 12 month period. But if you miss three tests, you are automatically suspended pending further inquiry. And so if you're an elite athlete and your livelihood depends on this, and, and your reputation depends on it, it's perhaps not so onerous. And a way that many of them get around it is to set the times first thing in the morning. So six o'clock is a very popular time to put your whereabouts, they're often obviously still in bed. And it's a bit annoying to get knocked up at that time at some stages. But again, that's the price that elite athletes need to pay. And most of them accept that, and well, they will accept it in principle. But in the case of Coleman and Kipsang, they both missed, well actually Kipsang missed four tests in 12 months, and Coleman missed three. Now, the next part is the defence lawyers will say, as Coleman has done, he's produced a statement that says, I went to the shops, the agency's made no effort to contact me. This is on his third test. No, they made no effort to contact me and they didn't wait. And you know, on the face of it, that looks like a half decent excuse. But then you go, yeah, but you're the 100 metres world champion. You've already missed two tests this year. Why are you putting yourself at risk by nipping to the shops when you're supposed to be at home? Or where you're supposed to be where you said you were going to be? It's just silly. It's foolish. If nothing else. But of course, it raises question marks, especially when there's been two previous tests. Got a bit of an incline, a bit too fast there. Keep it nice and easy, we'll put another surge in. Off we go. 30, 40 seconds or so. and relax, not too easy. And then in the case of Kipsang, 
Oh, he, so he missed four tests, so it's even worse. And in two of them, his excuse is, uh, well, it's just brilliant, really. One of them, there was an overturned truck on the road, got held up in traffic jam, couldn't get back. Sounds plausible. And the other one, I think it was a motorbike accident or something. Same deal, got caught in traffic. Problem was, both those events happened, but they didn't happen on the day that he missed the tests. So his ban is not just for missing the tests, it's for misleading the process knowingly. And it's not great, is it? It doesn't cast the sport in a great light. It's not very inspirational. Well, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's just sad. And this leads on to... Now, why is this an issue? And it's not just... Well... It's cheating, right? So it's breaking the rules. Happens in loads of sport, not just drugs, but other stuff. People cheat. Always pushing to the boundaries. We'll come on to why people do that in a minute, but... For me, doping in sport is not just cheating. I mean, it's worse than that. I think it's fraud. Now, in the case of both of them, but let's look at Kipsang. Major marathon winner. You get paid a lot of money for that. Hundreds of thousands of pounds for winning the London Marathon. Then there's endorsements that you get and the kudos from that. And in the case of prize money, you are defrauding somebody else and the person who came second should be getting that money and in the case of Christian Coleman the silver medalist should be getting the gold medal and a gold medal winner at the World Championships is a very different thing from a silver medal winner when it comes to endorsements and sponsorships and career opportunities And one of the interesting things to look at in exactly this context is the, what is by some people described as the dirtiest race in history, which isn't the Ben Johnson 1988 100 metres final at Seoul Olympics. It's the women's 1500 metres at the London Olympics in which six out of the top nine finishers have since been implicated or have failed a doping test. Not necessarily that covered that period, but either covered the period before through retrospective testing or the period since. So six out of the top nine people who finished in that race 
have all been busted. And that includes the gold and silver medalist. Then you've got three others who finished in the top nine, who've been denied their chance of glory. And of course the people who sit outside that. So I think they were in 10th and 11th place in the race. Lisa Dabriskie and Laura Waitman, both British. They would have effectively come fourth or fifth. But who knows what could have happened in a different race scenario because trying to compete for 9th, 10th, 11th in a sprint finish is a completely different thing from trying to compete for 2nd, 3rd and 4th in an Olympic final. And then, and that obviously has a big impact on their careers, and then you go, okay, but there was 12 finalists, I think it was 12, six of them were probably well, have been subject post or pre. So that's six people who didn't even qualify for the final who could have done, whose lives could have changed. So it's defrauding all those people. For money and earnings opportunity and career prospects. Then, okay, you go... Alright, but perhaps the solution to this, and this is something people say, is let them all do what they want. Let them take what they want. And let it just be free for all. And you look at that, and I look at that and think, oh God, no, because when you're watching the sport, you just can't be sure what you're seeing anymore. And then it becomes about who's got access to the best performance enhancing drugs who's got the best doctors who's got the most money that can afford them rather than purity of the sport okay I'm getting angry so we're going to put a little surge in now 30 seconds And it kills it as a spectator sport. If you, I think if you do that, it's bad enough as it is. And the great tragedy for that, for me, is uh, I don't think there's too many sports that gets the pulses racing as a spectator and watching a you know the last lap of an 800 or a 1500 or a 10,000 metre race when medals are on the line and glory's on the line watching the tactics, watching the kicks and the surges and seeing people hold on, seeing people drop off who's going to have the kick in the last 100 metres it's just brilliant to watch but it's definitely less good to watch when you know 
what's going on. And for me, that's a great tragedy. Okay, another surge. Let's do it. Okay, I'm at So for me, there's two reasons why doping in sport is bad. And that is, like I say, the fraud and the lack of fairness as a spectator sport. Uh, and for me, the third reason and the biggest reason for not legalising it is its impact upon amateur sport. And all you need to do is look at the number of people who have bought the fast shoes to improve their performance to know that people will do what they can to get an edge. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that any of those people are going to take performance-enhancing drugs. And there's by no means a crossover between people who wear the Nike Alpha Fly and people who take drugs. But... There will be people in the amateur level who are so committed to their goals that they'll do what it takes. And the reason that's an issue, again, is about fairness and fraud. But it's also about health. Because a lot of these things need to be taken in appropriate doses. like everything in life in the wrong hands there can be some quite significant consequences leading towards potentially loss of life so it's it's not flippant point at all what some of these things might do to your circulation and your heart have serious implications. And there's also obviously role modelling about you know what should what is the correct and the ways to compete with integrity. And I suppose, you know, at this point it's worth asking, well, why? Why does this all happen? And for me, it comes back to outcomes versus process. Something I talk about quite a lot. And it's, you know, if you're existing in a win-at-all-costs world, whether that's the environment you're in, or whether... That's how your brain works and how your value system ticks. Then you can see why people would lead down this route. And the same is true in business. You know, if, if it's all just about the win, and whether that win is defined as your promotion or revenue for your business and profit versus customer service or 
team playing, then you do everything you need to do. And sport's no different. So it all comes from that win at all costs mentality. And then you go back to the classic doper of our time, Lance Armstrong. That's what it was about for him. He just refused to allow himself to be beaten. So that's the first thing that we can do about it. That's where this is all heading. What do we do about it? The first thing is let's shift mentalities from win at all costs to thinking about the process and the enjoyment of the sport for the sport's sake, enjoyment of the competition. I don't like to lose any more than the next person, but I much prefer to win fairly, or rather I'd much prefer to lose fairly than win by cheating. bad taste in your mouth doesn't it if you know you've cheated and we'll all have done it in sport at some stage but it definitely leaves a bad taste in my mouth anyway um this what else before we get into the next thing we can do let's put another surge in spice it up a little bit So the next thing is, you know, what are the doping agencies doing? Why are they not catching these people? And here's, here's a reality. The UK Anti-Doping Agency, UKAD, receives its budget from the government, from the Departure of Culture, Media and Sport. Its budget is about anywhere between six and nine million pounds for which it's supposed to run anti-doping programs in the UK across all elite sport. Globally, the combined budget of all of the anti-doping agencies, including WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, who sits above them all, is less than $300 million. Now, they sound like big numbers, but you put them into context, and they're not at all the context of UK sports investment into Olympics. And each Olympic cycle, about £300 million goes into sport, into winning medals. And uh, for example, skeleton in the Winter Olympic sport where you slide down a sledge down an icy track, that gets about five or six million pounds of funding for each Olympic cycle. So broadly the same, not over the same period, but broadly the same budget as the anti-doping agency gets. 
and that's some sport like skeleton which only a handful of people can possibly do in the UK outside of elites so you know there's context and then you look at football and you know six to nine million I mean that's just nothing is it just nothing doesn't even buy you an average League One player for a, a season or two. So in that backdrop, you can see why the dopers stay ahead of the agencies. So that's the second thing that we can do, is improve funding into catching dopers. from governments or from governing bodies in sport I think there's a moral obligation to invest more in this area ok and then the third area which I've already touched on the third thing we can do which I think would have the biggest short term impact would be to criminalise the act of taking performance enhancing drugs tried in court sent to prison made to return winnings where possible all of that stuff because I think then if you're 50-50 and whether you should or you shouldn't dope you're likely to not Okay, let's have another surgeon in a few minutes to go. final thing I'll say is uh, this is obviously close to our sport and it's close to well, close-ish to me I guess I, something I feel passionately about is maybe able to tell but and that's because of how it makes the sport of athletics and running look to the wider world but it's obviously in cycling as well which arguably on a bigger scale and even more detrimental but they're both as bad as each other really but if you think it only happens in endurance sport then I think you are well, you're wrong <laughs> it happens in all sports rugby tennis football 
and an argument that's thrown back by many people is yeah but those sports are skill based so has less of an impact so it's less important or somehow it's, it's not to be entertained but the reality is you know skill level diminishes under fatigue conditions and if somebody can still hold be less tired than their opponent but hold their skill level higher and be able to win the crucial moments in skill based sport when they need to the last minute goal or the last minute press and cover for those teams who play that high press game these days or those five hour tennis matches and so it goes on Okay, one last surge. Okay, I'm going to sit down, and that's our 40 minutes done. Good work. Gonna jog in. So when it all costs more funding for the agencies, or rather drop the win at all costs mentality, more funding for the agencies, criminalise doping for what it is, and that is fraud. There you go, 40 minutes of ranting and discussion about some stuff other than COVID-19 and lockdown. Hope you enjoyed the session. Nice little jog out. And remember to keep your easy runs easy. Really easy so that you're talking all the way through and ranting about all sorts of stuff. Okay. There we go. Thanks everyone, have a great day, and I will be back again soon. Take care.